You know, here's the thing. It, it really bothers me when I listen to a new podcast, especially if I start at the beginning and they start out by awkwardly saying, so we're here and we're doing a podcast. And I'm like, hey, buddy, you haven't started the podcast yet. I don't want to do that. So edit out all of the stuff I just said, even if you think is cute and funny and whimsical and, and, and you know, relatable for people. Hi, I'm AJ. Hi, I'm Cal. And we're calling it Hang On with Cal and AJ, right? right? Yeah. So the idea behind this is that I talk about shit that I find interesting and you bounce back. Yeah. My idea for like part of why this is interesting is that we have such different demographics. There are a few that we have in common in terms of like both being neurodivergent, both being white, both having like similar class status. The ones that we have sort of almost in opposite are mainly around gender, I would say. Sure. Like you being cis straight male and me being non-binary pansexual thing. Yeah. But speaking of what we have in common, I love info dumping and I have hyperfixation special interests, whichever term you prefer. And I really like the idea of sitting down and ranting about something that I find interesting. And so for today, we thought we'd start with the thing that I think about the most and that I think people don't talk about the most, which is body essentialism. It's tricky to talk about this because there is an established thing, which is gender essentialism, referring to, for example, like, women are worse at math because they're women. That's not the type of essentialism I'm trying to describe, but I'm also trying to describe a type of essentialism as it relates to gender. You follow? Yeah. I mean, of course, I know where you're going with it. Well, no, I just, I feel like I'm saying a lot of words very quickly and want to make sure that you understood what I was saying. Yeah, you, like, the first thing that you wanted to talk about here was, like, the way that people have a certain familiarity with, like, assigning essential traits to genders. But there's a deeper layer of the discourse that you feel like you don't see reflected as much, which is assigning genders to bodies. Correct. A lot of trans people talk about, you know, you shouldn't assume someone's gender by looking at them and that like assigning someone a gender at birth is harmful or coercive. I think ideologically it's deeper than that and that those people are like about to touch on something that's important and doesn't quite get pinged. So how do you feel like that like skates off of something that you wish they would go deeper on? It's sort of this idea that like I do this thing where I create metaphors in my head. I have been working on this one for a while. I'm not sure how effective it is, but in my head, it's like an alien metaphor. The idea is that, you know, imagine an alien society that we've never had any contact with. They're totally divorced from anything on Earth, any cultural things that we're familiar with. And they have two types of people in this society, triangle people and circle people, right? And they determine which one of them you are based on the shape that you your body is, right? And then in their world, triangles are, I don't know, super smart and super nerdy and really like ice cream. And circles are, you know, sure. <laughs> super angry all the time and love basketball, right? Random traits, that they assign to people based on these shapes. We as human beings on Earth know that the shape triangle has absolutely no connection to smartness. There's no inherent smartness present in the triangle shape. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right? 
There's no inherent anger present in the circle shape. And yet, in this society, those people feel that triangles are inherently intelligent. You know, there's this really deep connection between the shape of a thing and a, a, a social trait. Right. I, you can obviously see where I'm going with this. We have the exact same thing when it comes to mainly genital shape, right? And gonads. So, you know, if you decide that someone has a vulva, you are making this massive extrapo- extrapolation then about their gender. And there's this idea that a certain set of genitals can have social traits inherently embedded within it. You said something interesting there, which is that if you decide that someone has a certain set of genitals, then there's a bunch of traits. But the idea that you're deciding and not observing a like <laughs> fact about the world around you is, I think, something that other people might need broken down. Yeah, well, I'm... This is like working from a framework in which you're aware intersex people exist. And I know that intersex people don't like being used as a token in this conversation, but I do think it's important to, at the same time, include that reality, right? We have more than just two types of genital shapes and, you know, gonad configurations. And the line between those two is not very clear. (laughs) You know, there are lots of things in what we would call the in-between, and really the difference between a clitoris and a penis or a clitoris and a phallus is the length on a ruler. Like, at what point does a clit become big enough to count as a penis? Wouldn't there be other physical characteristics that would tip the scales, right? Right, like location of the urethra and, like, presence of a scrotum and things like that. Yeah. The, The thing is that there is a... When we are growing in the womb, we all have the same set. Everything's shaped exactly the same. And then there's a divergence where either you develop a scrotum or labia majora, you develop a penis or a clitoris, you develop the gonads externally or internally. So it's really the same structures that just are scooted around a little bit and different sizes. Like, yes, you can identify the location of those things, But I guess what I'm saying is someone is making a determination at some point whether someone's genital shape is a vulva or a penis or not. And who is making that determination? Usually the doctor. That turns into a legal status that then becomes rules about how that person is allowed to socially move through the world, right? This is another piece of it, and I don't want to go too far into this side tangent, but... This is another piece of it that we don't think of gender as a legal status upon which people are oppressed, Mm -hmm. right? The government assigning you triangle, right? And then saying, and all triangles are X, Y, Z, you know, not allowed to have abortions. (laughs) You know, all triangles are not allowed to vote, to use history as an example. That is, that's creating a category of human, legally instantiating it, and then oppressing people based on it. When we talk about that in any other topic, that feels obvious, right? Like, there's a lot of other axes of oppression on which we talk about that, and it's, like, clear that's a thing. If people had, like, whether they're disabled or not on their license, like, that might be more of a conversation, although that might even be a thing. If, if we had, for example, well, whether people were gay or not on their license. I was going to say race 
is a good example. Well, I'm thinking of something that's invisible. Oh, sure. Right? So, like, if we said whether people were gay or not on their license, and then the fallout of that, we would be like, hey, that's really fucked up that we've encoded sexuality as a legal status, and then people are treated a certain way based on that legal status. Yeah. Are allowed access to certain medical procedures, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's a certain way in which that has that legal status has been encoded in the past and like may indeed be again, which is like the ability to marry each other. Mm. Right. Like, right. and you know, even having two names attached to a marriage license that then those names have other bureaucratic information attached to them, such as social security numbers and genders and all this. So like there is an encoding of your gayness in any kind of thing like that, but especially with the marriage stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my point, though, is that I feel that we have talked about that in the in the sort of public discourse. There's conversation about how the state can perceive your queerness and therefore you're oppressed on based on that. There's not a lot of conversation explicitly about how the state has codified your gender. Mm. You know, this is why there's the issue of in Oregon, there was the option to put X on your license right. to indicate that you were non-binary as opposed to male or female. You could have MF or X. And people had a lot of different opinions about it. The idea that, like, we're including more genders. In like, why are we legally codifying more genders right now? Right. That's in- not helpful. <laughs> including expanding the state's gender schema instead of abolishing legal gender right right (laughs) why do we have a legal gender the only point of it is to hurt people sure um you may have to expand on that because i think people would push back or at least say like well it just makes sense (laughs) you know well well i want to i want to say something about that because i think there's a really enlightening concept of like legibility sure that i really appreciate that i've read about which when especially states but any kind of like apparatus of power is trying to trying to first apprehend what is happening with some group of people and then control what that group is doing there is often a process of schematization mm. that is very like bureaucratic in nature right it's like we're going to identify things that we can then have a limited set of options for each of those things to be. So it's like, we're going to identify your gender and there's a limited set of options for which gender you can be. We're going to identify people's race and there's a limited set of options. We're going to identify where you live and there's going to be Mm -hmm. a very specific number and name attached to where you live. Right. Right. Like everything has to be. It'll be zoned a certain way and it will be. Yeah. uh, Everything has to be codified into a form that can be bureaucratized Mm -hmm. in order that you can be kept track of basically sure surveilled surveilled yeah and that often goes hand in hand with violence against you sure right the more that you are like bureaucratically codified the more you are also subjected to violence sure i agree with that and so there's often a painting over of the myriad like subtle differences between people as they are forcibly categorized into one of a very limited number of options. And that's definitely the case with gender. Yeah, absolutely. You had said that you wanted me to expand more upon why I think that like 
having illegal gender only harms us. Yeah, well, I think that, so I wanted to add that, and then I wanted to say, like, the idea that it's harmful to encode it in law is, I think, something that's not obvious. Hmm. I guess I would say, what is helpful about it? If you ask me to play devil's advocate, I would say it enables people to have information that they may need in bureaucratic settings. Like, for example, it's not a purely bureaucratic setting, but a doctor may need to know the legal status that you were assigned based on your body at birth in order to try to help you medically, right? Right. So a doctor may need to know what um, gonads you have, what hormone, what's your like dominant secondary sex characteristic hormone system that is functioning for you, what is the shape of your genitals, like what reproductive concerns might we have, how are certain drugs going to affect you based on the various systems in your body that are going on? Sure. There's like a lot to react to there, but then also like uh, it may in some way be helpful if you're just going through a purely bureaucratic procedure, like it might be helpful uh, at the DMV or something. I don't like, yeah, I, I, I hear you, you're asking but I think to, you're doing a bad job at playing devil's advocate. You're asking me to think of examples of something I don't agree with. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But I guess my point is the main example that people use as a thing that having a legal gender is helpful for is medical situations. Yeah. And the people that that actively harms is trans people because it is presumed that people's bodies are different than what they actually are. And then they are given treatment that is not appropriate for their body being female or being male, which are the only options regarding legal gender is not a reliable indicator of what someone's body is shaped like or what reproductive systems they have or insert medical information about their body. You know? Well, I think that, so we come into this discussion as like, let's talk about body essentialism. Mm -hmm. I think that you are stating the position that's opposed to body essentialism. Now you need to like convince me why is the legal status on my uh, birth certificate that I am male, not a reliable indicator of how my body is going to function that a doctor may use to like give me treatment. Well, there just are plenty of people who identify as men who will not have a penis or not have testes or will not have the same risk for certain diseases as cis men, right? So you're talking about trans people? Yeah. I'm saying there are men who are trans who are outside of what a doctor will expect. And so then you have the situation of like, okay, this person's information says man, but it, but it wouldn't. See, I think that you're, again, you're stating the opposite position, but you're not making the case to the person who has the essentialist viewpoint of like, okay, why should it be the case that someone who's living as a man, but whose legal status was assigned female at mm-hmm. birth, why is it not more helpful that the doctor can see that their status was assigned female, right? Mm. Like... Because that tells the doctor medical information about their body that you're saying might be actually covered up by uh, their status as a man socially, right? 
Right. I mean, my response to that would be that the suicide attempt level in trans people is 41%. And that's fucking ridiculous. And part of that is misgendering and the invalidating of identity. And we know that misgendering trans people results in this like deeply unhealthy mental health situation. And so insisting that we need to misgender trans people in order to treat them medically when there is other options, which I'll get into in a moment, is simply an excuse to continue oppressing trans people. Sure. I mean, I agree with you. And I don't think that, like, there's any reason that medical status and legal status can't be separate things. Sure. Um, And, I mean, I don't, you, I think we at some point said, like, I don't know how far we want to go down this tangent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, like, I, I... I agree with what you're saying. I'm not sure that I think that you are like making the case. I think again, you're like, you're saying it is really harmful to people that we have this like essentialist viewpoint, but that doesn't tell me why it's wrong. That just tells me that it's like hurting a lot of people, you know? Isn't it wrong because it's hurting a lot of people? Morally, but not logically. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? I'm trying to say that like, Yes, it's morally wrong and causing people extreme amounts of harm to be misgendering them through medical status. And it is more effective for the case of, for example, people, cis people who have gonads you don't expect or have chromosomes you don't expect, and therefore there's more going on to their body than you expect, right? The alternative that I am suggesting, which I haven't gotten to yet, is denoting specifically which parts of the body a person has on a medical form. And this is what trans people advocate for in medical settings is saying like having check boxes, not separated by gender that are just like, check the ones you have a prostate, a uterus, you know, and then that doctor knows I need to worry about uterine cancer. I need to worry about prostate cancer. I need to worry about X, Y, Z, or I can assume concerns related to this person. Right. That, I think, is more helpful because it is more specific and more detailed. That in, It also includes intersex people. It, you know, it includes a wide variety of people. And I think a big reason we don't do that is sex shame. Hmm. I think that there's a sense of the need for a euphemism around talking about people's body parts. And that that's a problem. <laughs> so you feel like one reason that one sort of justification of kind of body-based essentialism around gender is the need to put certain things away and not talk about them explicitly, like what shape your actual body actually is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big part of it. Um, There's this, this is part of the discomfort around trans people in general, is that like, if you're going to talk about someone being trans, you might end up talking about their private parts right like (laughs) and it's i'm not like encouraging cis people to ask about trans people's genitals more i'm just saying that like it has to do with this part of the body that has all this shame around it a lot of times again like not all trans people but (laughs) this is often the case that it has to do with these um sexualized parts of our body that we're not comfortable talking about sure I think that with the idea of, like, there's a series of parts of the body that doctors may need to know that you have, and not all of them are visible. 
Mm-hmm. That is a really useful because now I feel like you're making the case of like, yeah, here is a more helpful framework for actually thinking about the medical objection that I raised, right? Right. That's like, what do doctors actually need to know? Right. It's not your legal gender. It's a bunch of different things about your body that are not true for every cis person and certainly like are not going to be true for every trans person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you'll get into this, but like the schematized idea of like some people are A, some people are B, and A has all these features and B has all these features is not even true. <laughs> Getting to that point is kind of a, a struggle sometimes. Mm. Like, I'm, I mean, I had to learn this stuff, like, uh, sure. and everyone kind of has to learn this stuff, but like, uh, as a cis person, it's a little more challenging even because you're just like, have this internal resistance of like I know the, you guys are just dumb. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're all airheads. <laughs> we cut have, that out. Cut that out. <laughs> we, have, we have no ability to unpack the ideology. So we've been given. No. You really threw me off track. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I had to learn this stuff, and I think everyone has to learn it, but as a cis person, it there is an internal resistance to the idea that like how you've been taught to understand your own positionality is wrong, Mm. you know? Whereas I feel like, um, like I had the experience with neurodivergence where I was like really eager to devour a lot of this information and really like willing to let it change how I saw the world. Sure. Because it related to me in a very direct way. It's freeing. Yeah. It feels like now I have the tools to make sense of my experience. Sure. As a cis person learning about trans issues, you have kind of the opposite thing where you're like, but now I have the tools to dismantle my understanding. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I know is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, um, even getting to that point of saying like, actually the idea of category a is inherently incoherent because, Mm so many people in category A don't actually have those things. Right. And the and they it's not the case that they've been put in category A because they kind of all have those things. <laughs> it's the case that they've been put into category A as a political act based on something about them. Sure. Which can be a very loose kind of mm-hmm. uh you know on the fly decision in some cases. Like you were talking about intersex people there are intersex people who get assigned a certain way and then have surgeries imposed upon them in order to make them more like that. Thing, yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I like now I feel like we get to make the case of like, that's, it's actually not effective to think about people this way. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree with that. I think it, an example of that right now is all of the ridiculous laws being imposed around athletes and finding out that there's all these cis people who suddenly don't count as athletes anymore because they're too not cis, you know? And it's like, nobody would ever know otherwise, except for these extensive medical tests you're putting people through. Right. Because like in trying to disqualify trans people from being their gender, you end up actually disqualifying a lot of people who are, are not living as trans, but who share qualities that make them not cis enough. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, yeah, like you just said, no one knew that before. Right. It wasn't <laughs> even relevant. It would have right. never come up. No one knew that about those people until right. they were subjected to these tests. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the categories do break down. And I think another piece of the idea that the categories break down is one of my sort of favorite 
thought experiments around gender, which is that this body essentialism that we're talking about really, and like transphobia in general, really relies on correlation equals causation. Mm. Say 10% of people are trans or gender nonconforming in some way. Just random percentage that's similar to what we see in 18 to 24 year olds right now. Okay. So say that 10% of the population does not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth, right? Sure. So you have, of all the people, 10% of the time you're wrong. But the correlation is such that 90% of the time when you assign someone a gender at birth, that's the correct gender. So you have this correlation of like people with this shape of genitals, which we're basing gender off of, usually end up to be this gender. So that's the correlation I'm talking about. But there's no causation there. The shape of the genitals is not what's causing the person to be that gender. Hmm. And we know that that's true because 10% of the time, it's not true. But is there a cluster of things about your body which, by and large, may cause you to go a certain way? Like, for example, I think that there is research in neurology into essentialized differences between people with the same body shape who are cis versus trans, right? I don't understand what you're saying. There's research, I, I think there's some research going on to try to find the kind of like female brain in the male assigned person to, mm. and I think some of it is very well-meaning where <laughs> it's like, we're going to use this, we're going to use neurology to prove that trans women are women mm-hmm. by finding the ways that their brains are similar to cis women. Sure. Brains, right. Is there not that kind of thing where... You're making an assumption that, you know, there's a lack of plasticity to the brain. I mean, a huge part of our, like, the way that our brains are could be assumed to be socialization. We see gender differences in children as young as, like, six months, right? In terms of, like, making choices based on what they're taught. So you're kind of in the camp of, like, there is no provable essential qualities to your brain based on gender. Absolutely. I'm not against the idea that there is such a thing necessarily. I'm not like advocating for that, but like I'm open to the science. The problem is that it's not provable because society. (laughs) So no matter how good of research you did on it, there will always be the very obvious Occam's razor, but society that's going on. So it it really seems like a fruitless endeavor. And also why do we have to have quote unquote proof in order to just treat people the way they want to be treated? You're just sending back any neurology paper on this with just like a big red (laughs) pen on the top that says socialization question mark. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (sighs) So frustrating. Yeah. I like something you said just then, which was, why do we have to have proof to treat people well, Mm -hmm. basically? And I think that a lot of this debate comes down to that, where there are are people who are willing, even though they don't understand quite what they're getting into, to just say, like, here's what people are saying. I'm choosing to listen and believe them, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to learn as I go. And then there's a whole other camp of people who are not willing to treat people well unless they can internalize what's going on for you first. Sure. Right. And then of course you have a bunch of people who are purely serving 
power and don't care <laughs> to treat people well because their goal is to oppress people. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which, so let's not forget about that. But like, <laughs> How could I? But I think that there are a lot of well-meaning kind of liberal or conservative type people who mm-hmm. feel like I would love to be on board with you. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I just don't get it first. So Absolutely. Can, can you do that first? And then I'll support you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. I know this and I accept those people. The people who are like, I don't understand, but I want to treat people the way they like to be treated because I'm a decent human being. That's my favorite people. (laughs) I have had the best experiences with those people. I am a very intellectual, thinky kind of person, obviously, around these things. I'm making this podcast, but my best experiences with allies have been, oh, I don't know what that means, but sure. I can use they, them pronouns or like, yeah. oh, I never heard of that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But but I'll call you whatever you like. You know, it's, it's kind of a very like down home Southerner <laughs> poor man kind of vibe that I really right. appreciate. Right. Well, uh, welcome to North Carolina. That's where we live. You can be called anything you want as long as it's hun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that feels really welcoming. And it feels very working class to me for some reason. Hmm. I don't know if that's like, weird to say given that I given my class positioning but it feels like this we're all struggling through it and we're all just trying to get through the next day I don't care what you what you want me to call you there's still food on the table for you because everybody's trying to eat you know like that kind of a a thing and I, I really there's a sense of deep abiding love to that that I appreciate yeah at the same time it also feels good to be known <laughs> for sure the feeling that you get from someone who's like not getting it, but accepts whatever you want to say about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then the feeling that you get from people that actually like fully understand is very different. Yeah. It's similar to like someone who misgenders you when they're trying and they don't like make it all about them and they're not like an asshole about it. And someone who misgenders you and then does a whole like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I always do that. I'm so awful. Like, <laughs> Sure. You're just saying you much prefer the person that like is, they'll still get it wrong, but they're like, they're doing their best and they're not making it all about them. Yeah. Yeah. Ideological coherency is not the bar for safety or for belonging with someone. Don't post that on Twitter. <laughs> 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 or Tumblr or <laughs> yeah, I, I really feel that. And I, I do think that that's something that's missing on the left is, and part of it is like the atomization of people and, and growing up with the internet and all that kind of stuff and not talking to your neighbors. Like if you have to talk to your neighbor, then you have to regularly interact with someone who doesn't know what a trans is, but like, you know, they'll call you whatever you ask them to call you, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm just saying that like, that scenario is the kind of thing that one might run into as an acceptable scenario in everyday meat space as opposed to on the internet. Sure, that's true. Yeah, I think there is something very interesting where like the the more people get online, the more possible it is to find people who are pretty much exactly like you. Yeah. And then like we've so many people and I've I've been sucked into this too online which is why I don't have any social media accounts anymore <laughs> so many people find it so easy to get sucked into hair splitting between people who you have everything in common with on the ways that you are actually different uh, and it's like 
when you... It's the left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, what kind of, you know, what kind of Marxist are you? Like, that kind of... But also, like, what kind of trans person are you? you know? Yeah. Like, and, and uh, yeah, there is a very interesting thing to talk about there, about how when the people that you know in in physical space are so different from each other, there can almost be more of a, a will to find common ground mm-hmm. than when there is a situation where you're in a room full of people who are exactly like you. Because then you have the urge to differentiate yourself from everyone else and like point out the ways that you are not just like one of these people. Sure. But, I'm a Leninist, not a Trotskyist. Sure. Right? Like, but, but I mean, <laughs> put like eight words in front of Leninist. Sure, right? sure. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I mean, I just think that's interesting. And it's, it's a way that like the media that we uh, interface through really changes our mentality. Sure. Around like how we try to connect with people. Something, something, McLuhan's characteristic reversal of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The characteristic (laughs) reversal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll never forget when you told me about that. And you were like, mind blown. I was like, this is so fun to think about. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a characteristic reversal. And, like, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's, it's the idea that, like, as a technology becomes ubiquitous, what it does in society can flip backwards and become the opposite thing. So, like, as cars gain in popularity, more things that are far away become closer because you can, more and more people can go to them. Mm-hmm. But as cars become ubiquitous, everything becomes further away than it had been before because now everyone must use a car to get everywhere, mm-hmm. right? So, like, now it takes a longer journey to get to the necessities of life, like the grocery store, than it would have in a world without cars because <laughs> it's not walkable and it's probably 10 miles away for a lot of people. Um, so, like, this characteristic reversal that you're talking about on the internet where, like, at first it enables you to connect with all kinds of different people <laughs> as it becomes ubiquitous and the only way people connect with the outside world, it only enables you to connect with people who are exactly like you. Yeah. Yeah. And- To add on top of that, part of the problem is that you end up with the experience of either I'm talking to people exactly like me and share my values, and that's when I'm able to consider myself safe, quote unquote. But when I run into people who aren't exactly like me and who don't have the same information as me or use the same words, then I'm not safe. And there's never a situation where... I don't share ideology or information with someone, but I'm still safe. Right. Or the other situation, which we talk about a lot and run into a lot, is I share ideology and information with someone and I end up not safe anyway because they're a big jerk. Right. You know? <laughs> sure, yeah. Which, which happens a lot in real life where like yeah. people don't, for whatever reason, people don't feel that members of their own community can be abusers. Or yeah. And like shocking twist members of every community can be abusers <laughs> yeah. because they're human beings yeah like yeah um i think we've wandered far afield from the essentialism discussion but <laughs> i'm having more fun now <laughs> <laughs> well i did have some notes on what i wanted to sort of like touch on and obviously we can edit things down at however we want to but getting back to this idea of body essentialism and the idea that the shape of a body 
can have an inherent trait to it, which is a gender or genderedness or <laughs> social gender. Yeah. Right. Uh, the same way we know that triangles aren't inherently smart. We know that vulvas aren't inherently feminine. And I think that's an interesting thought experiment to go through. Right. So you can easily think of ways that we consider how our penis is masculine, right? They get hard, right? They, they penetrate. They're, you know, there's all these different, they're big, they're, they take up space, right? Like we can think of all these sort of very obvious, we've all been taught these ideas, ways that certain genitals have gendered characteristics. Totally. So do the thought experiment with me then of what is feminine about a penis. Sure. Uh, well, it is vulnerable because it is external. There you go. Very obvious one. That's considered feminine. I it's think. hairless. It's hairless. That's true. Except for, well. The shaft, though, is yeah, hairless right. in ways that a vulva is almost entirely hairy. Hmm. In the visible things that we can see. Right. Good point. It's just really soft. It's true. One of the things that I learned as a teenager and when I first became sexually active is that, like, the skin on a penis is very, like, velvety soft in a way that I didn't realize was going to be the case. Sure. Yeah. Smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could even say, if if it's a penis with a foreskin, you could say it's shy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I... I no, think <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I think that there's a lot of ways that we take for granted the social gender we apply to genitals. Right. You can do the same thing with the vulva and that entire reproductive system that we attach to it, right? It's um it's hairy, it's protected, it's powerful in the sense that it creates life. It's a designer. You could say that it's resilient can have multiple orgasms, right? As opposed to a penis that can, is um, the same way we think of like 1800s women are like faint, like they can only go through one difficult thing and mm. then they, <laughs> you know? mm, right, right, right. Sure, and sure. that's not to say, like I know people with penises can have multiple orgasms. I'm just saying like, what are these things that we are taught and how are how can we actually think of it in the opposite way? Sure, sure, sure. Um, but but I mean, I think it's fair point. Like the penis needs a rest period after sure. doing, after doing a hard thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a fragile thing. Yeah, and I, I think that it becomes really obvious then how gendered are everything about genitals is, and also how absurd it is. Yeah, I mean. There's definitely a pull towards a certain way of thinking and you saying like, okay, the penis can be soft, like it needs a rest, like these things. It feels like that might be true in a certain way of looking at something, but it feels more like something that can be made a joke out of rather than the like essential qualities of it. Because everything about this discussion is like, the way you've been taught to essentialize things, it makes it very hard to see other qualities as maybe the real, like what's really essential. Yeah. Right. Like the fact that it gets hard, the fact that it's like compare the clitoris to the penis, the penis is the big one. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that like uh, it penetrates, like you said, like those feel like the qualities that we've been taught to see as 
Sure. What's really penis about a penis? <laughs> well, know? you can even turn the examples on their head, right? A penis penetrates, yes, but a, a vagina consumes. Mm. It overwhelms. It dominates. It dominates. Right? I, I think you could easily use the same language to describe the same action and have it be entirely different socially. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. And, like, the one that got me uh, back in the day when I was learning about this is that it envelops. Yes. That really showed me that the language that we apply changes how we see it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we could have, you know, roll the dice. I think we could have just as easily ended up in a society in which we applied all of the masculine traits that we have to women. Take me through that because I, that feels like a bigger leap than saying I can think of ways in which a penis is feminine, <laughs> right? Well, okay. If you are with me in terms of you can understand that the shape of genitals is has no inherent connection to social gender, right? There's nothing about a finger. There's nothing about a hair follicle that is gendered, right? There's... In the same way, there's nothing about a vulva that is gendered. Then we could have just as easily decided, oh, that's the masculine one. Oh, that's the strong one. Oh, that's the whatever. And given that group of people the um, dominance in society, right? We could have just as easily become a matriarchal society with all of the same qualities that we assign to masculinity and maleness. We could have called those that body shape male. But isn't there a isn't there an association with say, with certain genitals and certain characteristics because the people that have those genitals are more likely to have those characteristics? I need an example. Well, you talk about like strength versus weakness as something where you can imagine essentializing genitals differently. But can you imagine essentializing the two genders mm-hmm. differently in that regard? Like who's stronger versus who's weaker? Take me through that. This is the classic reversal of sexism idea. What if we were in a matriarchy? And what if men were the pieces of meat that got catcalled on the street? And what if, you know, men had to walk the stroller all alone and what if men were sexualized and objectified what if men were the people who had to wear the skimpy clothing in the video games and that kind of idea i feel like i've seen that a lot i think you're skipping over something here which is that like there are certain ways that sets of genitals are gendered and i can understand the idea as like a kind of ignorant cis person, like, okay, I could imagine gendering a set of genitals differently because there's all kinds of qualities that genitals have. Mm -hmm. And maybe the ones that I think are associated with men are not actually the ones that are the most important about the genitals that a certain man may have, right? Mm. But I think you're leapfrogging over a part of the thought process, which is that like a lot of why genitals get gendered the way they do is the the genders of the people they're attached to, right? Sure. And we imagine that like 
because it's a man's penis, mm. it has masculine qualities. Oh, I see. Right. And so there's the qualities of men are applied to the penis. We're talking a lot about genitals, but like it's really about the qualities of men that we think that either all men have to some degree or it's simply the qualities that make you a good man. Well, I think right? this is a very good point is that the the causation is not from the shape of the genitals to the social gender that you end up having. It's not like, because I have a penis, I end up a man. It's because I am a man and we've decided penis is man, then, you know what I'm saying? Like, the direction is opposite the way that we di- we say that it is, right? Elaborate. In a world devoid of gender and people with genders and gender in society, if you had a new baby, you couldn't say it is a certain gender based on the shape of its body because there's nothing inherent to the body shape that has gender in it. Right. In fact, it is the it is not that the shape of your body determines what your gender is. In fact, it is what society says gender is determines what gender you end up right your relationship to gender is a process of like you filtering and processing all of the gendered information that you're given over the course of your life yeah right well like the doctor's decision when encountering a newborn baby has nothing to do with the shape of the body in so much as it's the one that they were told should be designated a certain thing Mm. i think that the doctor would say it's entirely about the shape of the body so you're saying actually it has nothing to do with body shape but doesn't it no i'm saying inherently there's no like origin of the concept of gender within a body shape you're saying that like gender doesn't come from bodies it's applied to bodies Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly. I mean, I agree. No, 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 no. I just... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I just, I, I try to play the, like, role of someone that doesn't get what you're saying a little bit. But, like, yeah. No, you're doing uh, a really good job, like, helping me be more explicit and say, like, make sure what I'm saying makes sense. I just think you want to unpack the essentialism that we apply to bodies you've got to take me through the steps of unpacking that. And sure. like, I probably have a much better idea than you do of like the ideological response from a cis person that doesn't really understand this stuff. Yeah. I think that that's kind of a like galaxy brain concept for a lot of people is like bodies don't give us gender. We apply gender to bodies. Yes. And therefore it comes back to like how we started this discussion of like there are bodies that people have but that doesn't correlate actually with well it correlates but it doesn't cause yes 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 the correlation is real right right like that is a thing that happens is like most people with this body shape end up with this gender right but (laughs) and imagining i'm imagining your like imaginary world where no one has gender and what is this and then we have statisticians telling us like (laughs) turns out that 90% of people with these kinds of bodies like end up 
in this kind of social role. Whatever. Right. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, and it's, it, it's the same thing as the neurology piece that we were talking about earlier in that on top of that, how can we know that the reason that 90% of people with those body shapes end up having that gender, how do we know that that's not just because we tell them to? And it's easier to stay within the assigned gender than it is to break out of it. Right. You know, I think that that's something to think about with trans people is like, there really is a lot of variety in terms of how aligned with your assigned gender you are, even within cis people. A lot of cis people feel like they don't fully match up, especially women feel they don't fully match up with their assigned gender in terms of not just whether they're a man or a woman, but their role and how they're supposed to perform gender and how they're supposed to look, their gender expression, etc. If we consider that, we have this sort of spectrum between people that are fully aligned that are like, hell yeah, I love my gender role, and people, and then trans people on the other side. And the oppression that trans people face is the thing that deters people from saying, shrugging off the gender stuff in a really big way, you know? For sure. Um, I know for me, I felt like, eh, I can go along with this woman thing for most of my life until it became the misogyny that I experienced got worse and worse and worse. And I became more and more aware of it. And it became intolerable to continue fitting in. It's interesting that you say misogyny specifically because I feel like there is a lot of kind of backlash right now against non-binary people and trans men that comes in the form of cis feminists saying it's of course it's hard being a woman, but that doesn't mean you're not a woman. Right? <laughs> but you have talked to me about the feeling of dissonance inside of like there's misogyny and additionally there's a feeling that like this isn't even right. Like Yeah, it's not just this sucks. It's this sucks and you're doing it based on an assumption that I'm something I'm not. Right. So it becomes It's like, you know, being falsely accused of something almost. <laughs> you know? Well, don't put it that way. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Falsely convicted of womanhood. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying like not that not that anyone deserves being convicted of womanhood but hey hey <laughs> I'm sorry there's a lot of women okay <laughs> I'm sorry um it is that feeling a little bit though of like I'm not even that thing and yet you're being shitty to me because you think I'm that thing right right I'm saying that there might be some people who think of themselves as cis who have some dissonance in them of like, I'm not super into being a woman and I'm not like enthusiastic. It's just like what I am because that's what I've been told I am. Sure. And it hasn't been enough dissonance for them to say, I want to be called something different. I want to change my name. I want to talk about this with other people. Yeah. Instead, the level of discomfort or dysphoria is low enough that it doesn't necessitate um, or it doesn't seem worth going through the social change or the pain of the social change involved in 
social transitioning. Sure. And you often, like, can hear that exact type of language from TERFs, the people that Mm -hmm. are, like, most outspoken against trans people. They'll express that exact thing of, like, I don't feel like I belong as a woman, but I made it work for me. And (laughs) now I live successfully as a woman. And, like, hey, the danger is there. If I was alive today as a 10 or 12 or 14-year-old, maybe I would be trans. And you're like, hey, you're saying a lot of stuff right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you're referring specifically to that um, J.K. Rowling quote of, of her talking about, like... She did say that, but, like... Other people say that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of TERFs are trans. Right. Like, <laughs> it's a problem. And, and I think they came to the wrong conclusion because, unfortunately, trauma doesn't make you a more enlightened person. It, <laughs> <laughs> it just only. fucks you up worse. Yeah, if, o- if only. Uh, people like to pretend that bad things make you a better person, but mm. actually all things can make you a better person. And we just really, really want bad things to be good in some way. <laughs> right. But, like, good things can make you a better person, too. Uh, I can and, and attribute bad... that idea to gender sauce on Instagram, though. <laughs> mm. And bad things can make you a worse person. Yeah. And good things can make you a worse person. Like sure. being rich. Sure. We do have this issue of a lot of trans people probably all trans people directly experience misogyny in a way that cis men don't. Mm. And that's hard to talk about Mm. because we're used to equating woman with experiences misogyny directly. Right. And a lot of times we have this sort of coded language to try to make up for that right now. People are really reaching around in the dark for the right language to describe this phenomenon right now, and it can't be succinctly packaged. People will be like, this event is for femmes, non-binary people, and Uh, women. Or they'll be like, (laughs) you know, and you always end up excluding someone that you want to be including or including too many people or et cetera, et cetera. Like it ends up being strange And what people are trying to describe, I think, is this event is for people that relate to the experience of directly having sexist oppression happen against them, right? Sure. That includes, like, trans men who have been perceived as women. That includes trans women who are perceived as women. That includes trans women who are not perceived as women, but internally experience themselves as a woman. And so she then has this internal experience, internalizing the misogyny while not experiencing it in an interpersonal way, right? We have uh, examples of people that are perceived as men but are non-binary but relate to womanhood in complicated ways and are trapped from accessing their womanhood because of misogyny, and that's kind of direct. We have people like me who are assigned female at birth perceived as a woman and then directly experience misogyny when people assume their gender and yet don't relate to being a woman and don't identify with being a woman and so have that mismatch that we were just talking about where it's like i'm not even that thing yeah um so you have transness complicates sexism in the same way that transness complicates attraction right and i think that like this is one of the ways that we get tripped up and end up misgendering trans people by accident. And part of thinking of bodies as neutral spaces is 
that creates a paradigm shift that allows us to better understand what language we can be using to describe these things. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, I, on one hand, I can see how that's beneficial. On the other hand, it does seem uh, like you are leaving one swamp and entering another if you're going to say like, we don't want to use necessarily all of this gendered language because it's become so clunky and it's so hard to actually be accurate with who you're trying to describe. So instead, we're going to just talk about people's bodies in a frank way. (laughs) Well, what I mean is uh, people who are using like women and femmes, right? Well, what about like masculine non-binary people that are still perceived as women, right? So, I guess what I'm saying is not that we should be using like more neutral language, but that we should be thinking more critically about what we're trying to describe, which is who is experiencing misogyny and are we making safe spaces from or safer spaces away from sexism? I think that I have started to think in this conversation about the concept of legibility once again, Mm. because what you're talking about is having the ability to accurately draw a circle around a bunch of people that you've never met. Sure. And like, on the one hand, there is a movement of trans people who are trying to throw off that kind of legibility in the first place and say, you cannot define people's gender and experience in life according to their bodies. But then on the other hand, organizing means trying to reach out to people Mm. and so like when you're putting when you're putting any kind of message out into the world and saying this is for a certain group of people you're again trying to redraw those circles yeah but this time you're trying to draw them in a much more complicated and nuanced way but ultimately you're reaching for that same thing that you were trying to reject yeah absolutely that's such a good point there's a real dissonance there yes definitely it's really frustrating and I think it's it's confusing and painful for a lot of people. There's a lot of really well-meaning people who are trying to organize and have to essentially market their organi- their organizing and can't do it effectively because as a group trans people defy definition. <laughs> that's part of what it can be to be trans. Right. I think there's an argument that that's a huge part of what it is to be trans. Sure. Even for binary identified trans people. Sure. The predictability of cis people is an aspect of being trans that like you can never experience again if you try to, if you transition even if you're not binary or if you are binary transition. Sure. Like if you transition from living as one gender to another, you will never like have other people be able to make those snap judgments accurately about you again. Right. And the snap judgments are like a form of oppression. Sure. But it can be a nostalgic thing if you then go into a place where you never get to experience that. Yeah. Like you can long for people to just like be able to read you instantly rather than having to like get to know you in this complicated way. Mm. Yeah. I think that's something that I have heard you and other trans people express is that like it can be so exhausting 
to always have to explain yourself, even to people that fully understand what you're going through. <laughs> yeah. That's part of being illegible though, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like every trans <laughs> yeah. person is, you know, that, you know, that famous quote, that's like every happy family is happily happy in the same way. And every unhappy family is unhappy in a unique way. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that, but that's silly. I think there's like, it's a sometimes an enlightening little heuristic to apply where like everyone who fits within this kind of rubric of cisness is predictable uh, because they all fit in the same way, mm-hmm. right? How they fit is by like accepting the things that they're supposed to accept and by doing certain forms of kind of self-mutilation <laughs> to deny things that they're not supposed to accept about right. themselves, right? Boys can't cry. Yeah. Uh, every, like, cis person is kind of cis in the same way, mm. right? Every trans person is trans in a unique way. Yeah. And so it, there can be no, like, one umbrella term to unite all trans people because that's what you were just saying. Like, what part of what it is to be trans is to not be predictable yeah in that way and not to have a banner under which you can just slot yourself in right right that's why we created the non-binary banner because it was defined as the absence of something as opposed to a certain thing that we all are right but now the state of Oregon is saying like (laughs) okay non-binary can just be it can just be m f and x yeah right you can be a legible category too oh right Oh, it feels bad, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The last thing in my notes is assuming gender. I guess I wanted to talk about this because it is something that I think a lot of, it's something that I think a lot of cis people don't ever get to this point of applying the information such that, oh, I shouldn't be assuming people's gender based on how they look. Part of that is, especially from cis women, being like, I need to know when I'm around a man so I know I'm safe or not, or I should behave a certain way or not, right? Men's gender needs to be legible in order for like moving through the world without being harmed. But if you can't figure out what someone's gender is based on the shape of their body or how they're presenting or their gender expression or any of the visible markers, you would have to just ask, And not only that, but that you would have to believe what they said. And that's really what trans acceptance comes down to, is this idea that how do we define male? It is someone who says they are and nothing else. How do we define female? Someone who says they are and nothing else, right? Um, The problem with that, I think, is that, as I keep saying, like sexism exists and gender-based violence and oppression still exists. And so... A big unspoken anxiety in cis people, I think, is feeling afraid of not being able to assume someone's gender and then assume about a laundry list of things about that person based on their assumed gender. Including you're saying their propensity to be violent towards me. Yeah, exactly. Right. And this is the problem is we need to reckon with that, right? You You cannot dismantle transphobia if you haven't dismantled sexism. Those things are like intricately linked and uphold one another. 
And part of the problem here, too, is that we assume that women can't do violence in the way that men can, when that's just not true. Or that women can't be sexist in the way that men can. And surely, like, women can't hold the same amount of power wielding sexism, but they can still be sexist, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, structures of oppression always include a kind of ever-narrowing circle in which there is someone at the top uh, and everyone who radiates downwards from that is capable of oppressing people lower down the hierarchy from them on some axis. Yeah. Right. And like you talk about sexism, like men also experience sexism from other men, like misogyny from other men. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Something I thought about a while ago when you were talking about the way that people kind of police each other's gender, like you experiencing misogyny, whatever, like the coercion of, the, the gender framework that we all live within. Like, men like me totally experience that too from other men of, like, if you've ever been teased for not being, like, enough of a guy's guy or something. Yeah. Like, or, you know, a lot of people have been beaten up for it. Like, mm-hmm. it's worse than that. Like, yeah, there's a lot of coercion into the gender framework from people who are able to position themselves as higher up the ladder than you. Sure. Um, This is part of where we run into the trouble with trying to describe, I want a certain group of people to come that have a certain relationship to sexism, but not cis men, mm -hmm. right? We're trying to describe that group. Uh, What I was even saying before is clumsy. I was saying before, like, people who directly experience misogyny, but also you were just describing a way that a cis man can directly experience misogyny in the form of, like, very physical, very lasting violence, right? I suppose the difference is, like, maybe potential to move into a category? I don't know. It's really hard to, like, pin down what people are trying to describe when they're putting these barriers on who they want in certain groups, but we know that it has to do with safety, safer spaces. We know that it has to do with sexism. We know it has to do with like women as a political class. But, but we don't know <laughs> the final answer. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really hard. It's really, really hard to say. I don't know. Anyone can come except for a cis man. Well, no, I, I, that was the end of the sentence. It's really, really hard to say. Like, oh. what, like what the right thing to do is. It's really hard to say what to do next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can say anyone can come except for cis men, right? But why are you saying that? You know, how do you describe the reasons behind saying that? Right. And then if you tried to, it it breaks down quickly. I think that there should be, this is one of the turf talking points as well, is like, there should be women-only spaces, and it's so important for women to have female spaces, right? And I do think that what is under that that they're trying to say is a thing that's true, right? That like people who have certain experiences of misogyny should be able to share those with one another in a space where they're not going to be shot down for doing that. But that doesn't mean you need to be a turf about it, right? Like, (laughs) like there are lots of people who are not cis women who fit into that description. Right. Yeah. I think the, the thing of like trying to, explode these categories and then trying to use the remnants to send out a message that here's who's welcome in this space or whatever like Mm. there is a 
impersonal process by which ideas are broadcast that reifies them into like being a thing, right? So like when you are putting out on like an advertisement, here is the kinds of people that like this event is for, which Mm -hmm. is the example that you've been trying to use. Right. Then you have to kind of codify things that people will understand. When you're in a space with people all of whom you actually can speak to individually, Mm. there doesn't have to be that kind of codification. Yeah. Because you can just say you, 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 and you are the kind are the people that I would like to talk to in a group. Yeah. Right? And like you guys can form a group without having to name who you are and why you are the ones in that group. There's a really important thing to that, which is that like when you have to codify everything before you even communicate it it forces you to think in these ways of like pulling out these little bits and pieces of the movement and saying like this person this person this person there are all who I'm trying to reach not this person whatever but like in addition to trying to codify things it's really important to like exist in spaces where nothing is codified because you're kind of trying to feel it out right right and like I feel like a big part of communication that happens primarily online is like everything has to be codified before it can be broadcast you have to find the right forum in order to talk to the right people yeah (laughs) you know and like if you make a subreddit with a title that turns out to be like slightly wrong for who you actually wanted to attract it like doesn't attract the right people you Mm. know like that kind of thing like sure if you say like these are the kind of people that i want to come into a discord or whatever you're you're having to like name a bunch of different people and like Maybe you'll attract someone that you didn't actually want there. Yeah. You know, or whatever. Like You surely will. Yeah. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Um, it just is it's a huge problem with like communication that's like written first. Mm. It's back it's like the neighbor thing. Mm-hmm. Where like it's so much more of a priority to actually try to find common ground mm-hmm. with people that you don't know what you have in common. Right. Right. And like I think an important part of trying to develop ideas around how do we live socially in a world that like is oppressing us is like the ability to be in spaces with people where you're not exactly sure what the thing is that you're doing, (laughs) you know, and to feel it out. Well, and part of, part of the neighbor example is not just that you don't know what you have in common, but that you are forced to, physically share space and do the work of living beside one another. Right. Right. So there's, that's the motivation for finding the common ground. Right. Whereas on the internet, you can just say, I don't like you people and fuck off to a different corner of Twitter or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Or a bunch of people can say, we don't like this person and they're just out. Yeah. Which there are a lot of reasons to do that. (laughs) To be clear. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, But it also is a social dynamic that makes it hard to actually sit with people that you have differences but not like people that you have differences with where the differences are not a danger to anyone yeah we're all just really fucking traumatized <laughs> at, like on this planet as people there's just like we've all got a lot of trauma and so it's it's really easy to feel as though things are a crisis or just way higher stakes than it actually is, especially on the internet. Sure. 
Well, I think I've hit everything on my notes. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about more. One thing I haven't talked about is that I really hate, I, I used this term earlier and I even nixed it because I'm growing to dislike the assigned male, assigned female, male-bodied, female-bodied. Yeah. And the biologically gender thing. Oh, biologically male, whatever. Ugh. Yeah. Well, you said all of those three terms as though they're all kind of in the same category for you. Is that how you feel now? I think that the way people use assigned male and assigned female is starting to join the category of the others because of the way people are using it, not the inherent mm-hmm. like nature of the terms. You feel like assigned female has shifted in its usage to now be just like kind of a woman. Well, I think people are trying to say perceived by the system as a woman or like perceived by strangers or perceived by the state as a woman, right? Yeah. And instead they use AFAB. Right. Those are not the same thing, right? Like an AFAB trans man who is perceived as a man in their everyday life, is living as a man, is very different from me. (laughs) Right. It doesn't really help to use the term AFAB when what you're trying to describe is, say, legal oppression based on a gender that is not coherent with that person's identity. Right. And you can say things like, um, and I've, I've said this kind of thing before in trying to like talk about this stuff of like describing myself as like an AFAB non-op, you know, not medically transitioned trans person. Right? Oh, it's the eight terms before the Leninist thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have all the right terms in order to describe the very specific kind of person that you are. But depending on what I'm trying to talk about in that situation... Of like, I don't know whether maybe if I'm trying to talk about like the cashier called me miss the other day and I'm trying to say like, it's so frustrating that I'm always perceived as a woman. It's more helpful to say perceived as a woman or whatever thing is relevant to what I'm trying to describe as opposed as opposed to all of the like, again, euphemistic terms to describe the 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 series of relationships to gender that I have gender and my body. You feel like AFAB has become a euphemism for has a vagina in the same way that woman, <laughs> like that female on a legal document is a euphemism for like has certain body parts, whatever. No, I think not, not has a vagina, but AFAB is becoming euphemism for perceived as woman. Hmm. I think part of it is this weird, this is like the thing I was, I was talking about recently that um, I said, my mom said to me of like, how did she say it? I'm sorry, but you have to know that you do look like a woman. Yeah, exactly. She had this tone of like, I know you don't want to hear this, but, mm. right? And it's like, I'm not bothered by that. Right. I'm very familiar with the fact that I look like a woman to people and that that's how people perceive me. I'm more familiar with that than you will ever be, mom, <laughs> you know? And that's kind of the whole thing. Well, yeah, that's kind of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the whole thing about being trans is that you're real familiar with it and you don't like it, yeah. you know? I think that there is this sense, especially from cis people and, like, allies, that you can't talk about that. That you can't talk about the way that you are like perceived as being a woman, even though you're not. You can't talk about the way that the general public perceives a trans person moving through the world. Mm. 
especially with what we're seeing a lot come up more and more these days with people coming out as non-binary and people who are not medically transitioning, people who are even not taking hormones, but then maybe using binary pronouns, like these kinds of things. It's like we all need to be participating in... It's as if there are two options. One is to participate in the fiction that the trans person has come up with, in which the whole world sees them as their true gender, and there's never any dissonance there, and they pass perfectly as cis and whatever. And then the other option is to give the real cold hard truth of, well, actually, everybody perceives you as a woman and you didn't know it, or perceives you as a whatever gender. Sure. And I don't think those are the only two options, actually. Yeah. And both of them are really missing about, uh, missing some, both of those options are really missing some important information. Sure. About the trans experience. Yeah. There's just kind of like, and I mean, you see it like from conservative trolls a lot of yeah. like trans people are delusional. Because they don't, they don't accept the way that they are perceived. Mm. They think that they're not perceived the way they are. (laughs) Because they've made a few superficial changes to how they look. And they think that I can't clock them Mm. when I can. Yeah, I mean, nothing is further from the truth. I think that trans people are way more keyed into that than anyone else. Especially a trans person about whether they are clockable specifically right. is way more keyed into that than anyone else. Right. It's really funny that people think that. Why do people think that? <laughs> well, I think that, uh, look, like, again, I'm going to say something that I don't agree with for the sake of the discussion, but like, I think that it's very hard to actually know the kind of discussions that happen among an oppressed group when you are uh, not one of them. Right. Mm. And so, like, the discussions that people who aren't trans and who don't know that they know any trans people, Mm. who think that all they know is cis people and who are just seeing this trans thing online, (laughs) I think that a lot of those people perceive a kind of united front from the trans movement of, like, well, it's the kind of common rhetoric of, like, trans women are women, trans men are men. Yeah. Like not agreeing with that is oppressive, right? Yeah. And, like, there is something that is missing in that, which is, like, we know that you don't get it, and there's a lot to talk about there. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But it's, it's just this kind of thing. It's put out in a way of, like, you must, you must get over these kinds of internal hurdles and, like, get on board. And I think this is where you get the people having this backlash against political correctness, quote-unquote. Mm. Because it's, like, what you're expecting me to put away and ignore is the fact that, like, well, you must know you still look like a woman, right? <laughs> like, that type yeah. of thing. And it's, like, to someone who's never had that conversation at all, it's, mm-hmm. like that's the one thing that you're not saying as a trans person. Mm. And so that's the only thing that they can think about is like, but you know how I perceive you, right? Because like they haven't unpacked any of this essentialism stuff. They're just like fully in that essentialism brain. And they're like, but you're saying that like, if you choose to live a certain way and if you feel an identification with certain things, then that is the essence of who you are. You know that I can tell how you were assigned at birth, right? Like, you know that I can tell by looking that, like, you know, you have a certain medical status, you have a certain legal status, you have Mm -hmm. a certain type of body. It's really interesting how deeply the equating of 
an external perception of someone's gender to an identity of gender. It's almost as if the ideology is that whatever your gender is perceived as is your true gender. Well, yeah, I thought that's where we started with this discussion is like, what people can tell about you externally is the truth about you. Well, what I mean is like, well, what, what do you mean there? Well, so you're saying like, oh, it's very, it's so fascinating how deep this kind of ideological training goes where it's like, whatever I can see is true, mm-hmm. right? And there's no unpacking of like the way that perception itself is entrained, mm. right? And I, I'm, I'm saying like, yeah, I thought that's where we started is the idea of like, okay, let's talk about how the entrained perceptions that like people go into two categories, it's all based on their bodies, bodies, gender arises out of bodies rather than gender being applied to bodies. Mm. I thought that was the starting point of the discussion. Sure, you're right. But we've come back to it in a way where you're kind of saying like, it goes a lot deeper than (laughs) you had maybe even thought. Well, I guess I just... I guess the thing for me is I hadn't considered that it doesn't matter to other people what my experience of gender is. Mm. Like, to a transphobe, it does not matter what a person's internal experience of gender is, even if it's one that aligns with what they perceive. Including for cis people, like, your experience of gender from the inside is irrelevant. You don't get to decide. It's not important, and it's not real. That's what I'm realizing and and what is, like, notable to me. Instead, it's the other perceiving you. It's the state perceiving you. It's the external, the doctor, whoever perceiving you. And however they perceive you is the real true gender that you have. Yeah. There's two things I would say about that. One is that is how oppression works. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it does not matter what you think. You are being put into a category as a political act. And you do not get a say. That's the nature of this. Sure. The other thing is... To the individual transphobe, that is probably one of their, like, hidden premises that they're working with is I, like J.K. Rowling, (laughs) have, I have put away the idea that, like, my internal experience and relationship to this gender Mm. matters at all because I learned that it does not. That's so deeply sad to me. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like a really deep grief when you say that. Bigotry is often deeply said. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, but like, that's what I'm saying is like, when you have done that internal act, then someone saying, actually, it does matter what my internal experience is, is like triggering to you. Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, but no, we all know that that's not true. And you're delusional for thinking that you can change, like, the way that this works. Yeah. I did this inter- internal work to put away the dream that, <laughs> I, that like, my experience inside matters at all. Yeah. You must do it as well because yeah. so that's how this world is. Right? Nobody can have student loan forgiveness because <laughs> I had to pay my debts. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it's so deep in that it's, like... It's very much an unspoken assumption yeah. that takes a lot of unpacking to get to. And this is what Alok is always saying. Alok v. Menon. They're on Instagram. And I follow them and I really appreciate the things that they have to say about gender. They are often talking about, like, why are cis people violent toward trans people? 
and what is going on with cis people and what what are they struggling with and they're often saying like there is this deep betrayal of self around gender that's happening for cis people yes and they're deeply offended by seeing trans people say i refuse to do that i'm going to love myself instead no matter how fucking weird it is yeah what one of the things that they ha- mentioned was that like just like walking on the street they repeatedly have like grown cis men come up to them and say like you know i used to dress in my mother's dresses when i was a kid and just like confess yeah. these like the confessional yeah. yeah yeah and it's like what an odd phenomenon from my perspective to happen and they talk about how like their response is like what happened you know yeah. and just like watching that process in that person's face right of like oh shit right you know it's really really painful and this like anger and hatred towards trans people is really coming from envy i mean one that's one thing that comes from sure yeah. sure i mean it comes from a lot of things but that is a piece of it right is this like inability to be like free or loved in their experience of gender or relationship to gender and seeing other people shrug it off and be like that's not fair for sure you know and and, and also like there's a generational thing and a class thing here where it's like if i experience violence from others mm-hmm. due to my feelings about this that are similar to what i'm hearing from you then like how can you just live freely mm. right like there's this kind of like double bind inside and this is at the root of like homophobia too. And it's at the root of ableism. A lot of times it's like, why should you be free when I am in chains? Right. Yeah. And like the violence enacted on the basis of that feeling is a, to justify the violence that was done to you. Right. Yeah. But also B to prevent someone else from having what you don't have. Yeah. It's bad. Unfortunately, discussions of unpacking, like, bigotry and oppression are hard to end on a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) True, 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 true. (laughs) Well, hey, now the positive note is that we have all these amazing trans people who are all, like, living their free best lives. True. And being the gender they want to see in the world. And that's great. Or lack thereof. True. (laughs) Yeah, the kids are very illegible. Yeah, I'm really happy that we're seeing so many more people being out than we had before, even though there's been this concentrated effort to create legislation against trans people lately. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, there's definitely a generational war happening there yeah Um, but i mean also a class war just because even even wealthy like young people are an underclass compared to their parents right there's just also this like supreme disconnect between people who are on new forms of media and people who don't really get what those new forms of media are supposed to be all about you know like tiktok is that what you're talking about not yeah but i i mean even youtube even Mm. facebook yeah right like there's this there's a massive disconnect between people who like watch regularly youtube videos Mm. and who don't (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like even though if you're a regular youtube viewer you are at risk for becoming like a jordan peterson fan like (laughs) at risk for (laughs) it really got me that 
person still has a lot more in common with me, for example, than like my dad who could not probably sign into YouTube if he needed to. Oh my God. You know what I mean? I really hope I keep up with at least the basics, you know, <laughs> like I really, we can all hope that we can do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that we won't, <laughs> but I, you know what? I think that like, there are certain epochal moments. It's not as though the people who lived through the industrial revolution in which comparable levels of wealth were achieved by a comparable number of men in the 1800s as now, like, it's not as though those people then had grandchildren who also lived through an industrial revolution. You know what I mean? Like their grandchildren lived through World War One, and that was like its own kind of massive epical moment, whatever. Yeah. But like what I'm saying is that I don't think that we are going to experience a similar like digital revolution as what our parents have experienced. Yeah, you that's know? a good point. So I think it's going to be easier on us to keep up with like the new trendy social media, whether it's the next version of TikTok or whatever comes after that, than yeah. it is for our parents to even like understand what social media is in the first place and then try to keep up with the changes. You've mentioned this before about that there's this idea that technology is ever increasing exponentially in, in its uh, ability to do shit. And it's just like getting more and more complex and impressive and we're all going to be holograms someday. Yeah. And that's just not true. It's not. The, tru <laughs> the truth about computation is that... Computation specifically, yeah. More and more hardware has become available over the past like 50, 60 years. But the fundamentals of programming have not changed mm. since the 60s. Fascinating. New paradigms have been introduced, but they are elaborations of old paradigms. Mm. Um, have to have an episode on that. I don't think anyone would <laughs> get what I was talking about. That's a very niche episode. <laughs> <laughs> I want to listen, though. I'll tell you about it in private. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I feel like we've covered all the things I want to cover. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, this was great. What do people say at the end of podcasts? Next time. I'll talk, and you can be the, the one that doesn't get it. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. Yeah. What do you think we're going to talk about next time? Uh, I'm going to make you watch The Batman, and then I'm going to tell you <laughs> everything that's wrong with The Batman. Yes! <laughs> the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for that. I think it'll be fun. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, I suppose we'll put like our socials or whatever. You don't have social media. I'll put my socials in the yeah. in the description or whatever. Yeah. The doobly-doo, as they say. That's on YouTube. <laughs> Podcasts don't have a doobly-doo. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call that thing, that? Description. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>